You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. There are a couple of things that happen when we say yes to God without a condition. One is there's a great deal of excitement because of what could be ahead. And so you have that part of it. And when you say yes, you say, God, I'm open to whatever you want. And, and at the same time, with all the excitement of saying, God, whatever it is that you have in front of me, there is also this fear that the unknown is, is out there. And I don't know what that looks like. Therefore, I'm not as comfortable as I want to be. And so when you say yes, when it's when, even in coming to Christ, when you say yes, it is a, that all-in proposition saying, God, wherever you lead, I'll follow, but I'm scared. And, we, and you live in that tension. And I want to tell you that that tension never really goes away if we're really open to following wherever God leads us. It never completely disappears. Now, I will say that the more you trust Christ and you say, okay, I'm going to say yes in this particular instance and you watch God's faithfulness, the more you do that, the less fear is involved in that because you understand that every single step along the way, God has provided. Every single step, God has been there to secure you and provide for you. So those that, those that step out and say, I'm stepping out in faith, but you have everything calculated, it, how much of a step of faith is that? And so when, when we started with this book of Nehemiah, there was a, an instance where Nehemiah was faced, faced with the reality that brought some uncertainty to his future. You remember in chapter 1, Nehemiah received news about the people of the exile that they were in distress. They, they were just, just kind of depressed and, and living in a land that was just kind of in disarray. The temple was there, but the rest of the city was in shambles. And so Nehemiah gets this word and he is broken because the, the gates are burned and the walls are broken down. And, and that which is uh, part of his ancestry has become an embarrassment, even among the peoples that lived in that area. So the people are in distress and they're, they're embarrassed. And Nehemiah could have, and we know this because we, we read about it last week, he gets this and he takes it on, but you know, Nehemiah could have said, this is not my responsibility. He could have just said, that's nice news, I'll pray for you. And left it at that. And we would say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. How many times have you said, okay, this family or whatever is going through this particular thing, I'll pray for you. And we just kind of left it at that. And when we really think about it, Nehemiah's involvement in this, this whole process is bigger than just going, I'll pray for you. He has become an all-in disciple of God at this point saying, God, I'm broken because of what is happening in a place that I don't even live. And I wasn't even around when it happened. 
But I'm broken because of that. And because of, because of that brokenness that I feel in my spirit and the burden of that, I want to do something. And so what we see in Nehemiah 2 is we see this change in Nehemiah that takes place in, in what God does with him over the course of about four months. It's important to him because of maybe because of national pride. He's part of that ancestry that says, I want to see my heritage survive. But I think there's, there's even more than that. I, I think there's a, an importance that Nehemiah saw that the people needed to return to God. There needed to be revival. Now this is the background that even led them into this captivity or this exile. It says in Judges 2, starting at verse 6, going through verse 10, it said, When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So they scatter. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. So you have this great, you have this heritage that has taken place. Moses, then Joshua, they enter the land. People got to see the, the, the walls of Jericho come down and they're getting ready to disperse throughout the land. And then it says this, then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Hires, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, which means that Joshua died and, and everybody that was Joshua's contemporaries died. Then these words, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he, God, had done for Israel. What an indictment on the nation. What an indictment on the discipling of people to understand who God was. And how to live in not just respectful fear of God, but actually seeing God at work and seeing the hand of God move. So Nehemiah is, in some sense, shooting for national pride, but also understanding there was a great need for revival. The reason they ended up in exile was because they needed revival and turned back God away from the nation. I think the other part of this is the reestablishment of the adherence to the law, understanding the need for mercy and grace. You know, the law was given to us, and Galatians says this in Galatians 3, it says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul in Galatians talks to the Galatian church and says the, the law was there as a tutor to lead you. It was a personal indictment on you if you understood the law that you were a people in need of great mercy. Basically, the law was there to teach us how bad we were and how much we needed God. And that may be oversimplification. You may go, I don't know if I agree with that. But how, how long does it take you to figure out if something's right or wrong? 
Doesn't take much if you put it up against Scripture. You lean your life up against Scripture, which is what we should be doing all the time, is lean our life up against Scripture, and as Scripture indicts us, we understand that we are a people in need of mercy and of grace. And Nehemiah understood that. He said there is a need for adherence to the law because it will help us complete or or further the idea of God's story of bringing mercy to a nation that needs a Savior. And so Nehemiah understood that in the scope of history, the Jewish people would only understand God and their need for God if they went back to the law and and an understanding of who God is and was and what He had done. So Nehemiah is a man who is burdened because of a nation that needs to come back to God. And I would pray that we would be that people. We would be just like him, burdened, because we live in a nation that needs to come back to God. We live in a nation where everything is moved away from who God is, and we say, okay, God, we want you to be part of our life, but we don't need you to be all of our life. I saw a billboard this week. It's in front of a church. And and when I saw it, I said, this is going to show up somewhere. Well, it coming out this morning. The billboard says this, and you may have passed it, and I'm not indicting the church, that particular church, okay? I want you to understand that. So I don't want to pick on a um, a sister fellowship. I don't know anything about it, but this is what the sign said. You can give two two hours a week to God. Okay, two hours a week, that's the requirement, right? I looked at it, and I went back, and I did some math. So, so the math is there are 168 hours in a week, right? So I give two hours a week to God. I come to Sunday school, and I come to worship. I'm going to give my two hours a week. The 166 are mine to do whatever I want. The 166 belong to me. What that tells me is that I get to be God of the majority of my life, and God can sit on the back burner till I'm ready to give him two hours. That's not the way Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that it is all in. That our lives are to be completely centered on who He is. And I understand the sentiment of the the poster or the the sign. They want you to show up at church. But that's not all that living out the Christian life is about. is two hours. Or three or four. Living out the Christian life says that we're going to give 168 to God. And if He lets us sleep during part of it, that's wonderful. But the rest of our awake time, it's worship. It's just part of our life. Our life needs to convey worship that it's all His. It's not mine. I am but a steward of the breath that God gives me for the amount of time that I live on this earth. It's that Psalm 90, teach us to number our days so that we may present a heart of wisdom. And that those that come behind me may see the works of your hands, God. Nehemiah understood that. And so we get to the very last phrase in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1.11, very last phrase says, Now I was a cupbearer to the king. We, we, just, we may just kind of glaze over that, but the cupbearer to the king is an important position. 
It's a position that is trusted. It has to be a position of trust. Because he's bringing what the king would put into himself, and it would not be unusual for somebody to try and taint what was going to the king in order to overthrow a government. There's a, a process of protection. And so Nehemiah was a trusted official within the court of the king. He had more access to the king than probably anybody else because he would physically stand before him, but he held the keys to what Nehemiah or what King Artaxerxes would take into himself. So Nehemiah was trusted. He was also a man of integrity. He was honorable. The king said, the, the king would look at him and say, I trust you because I believe that you are an honorable, honorable man. Therefore, I'm going to let you taste my food and taste my drink before I take it. There was an integrity level, and if Nehemiah had ever broken that, he would be out as cupbearer and probably lose his life. He was also valuable to the king, because being close, that close, he was probably a person that the king might even ask for advice from. And so Nehemiah held this position of, of great importance and so when we get to that place, now I was a cupbearer to the king, it was a big deal, not a small deal. It's not, it wasn't that he was in charge of armies, but he was essentially part of the upper echelon of a kingdom that was a major kingdom. And then we get to chapter 2. And it says, And it came about in the month of Nisan that in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that the wine was before him. And I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. See, entering into the presence of the king sad was not a good thing. You were supposed to be happy because that king was serving. Or that king was on his throne. And so Nehemiah wanted to be happy before the king. So it came about in the month of Nisan, which essentially is four months removed from what we read in chapter 1. And so the first thing I want us to see is that Nehemiah served the king well. He served the king well. For four months he had been there doing what he had always done for King Artaxerxes. And he comes into his presence. In Esther 4.2 it says, it talks about the idea of coming before the king. And you don't come under or into the presence of the king sad. And then we read verse 2. So now he says in last of verse 1, Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad? So the king noticed something in Nehemiah's life, made his face sad. He says, Though you are not sick. Because you know, as well as I do, when we don't feel well, we don't look well. You ever seen somebody or walked up to somebody and said, You're not looking too good today. Now, if they're, not, if they're not sick, they're going, well, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. But if they're sick, you go, yeah, I'm just not feeling well. Something's going on. I don't know if it's you know, my head cold or whatever it happens to be. But your face kind of shows that things are not going well internally. That's why I appreciate Eddie and Donna Sarvis, who in the middle of all their, in the middle of all their trials, they just have smiles, beaming smiles on their face. It's not that the trial has gone away. It's not that the suffering of, that illness, of illnesses has gone away. They've decided they're just going to push through and rely on God. And so the king recognizes it. 
He says, the king said to me, why is your face sad though you are not sick? There's nothing but sadness. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Because at this point, Nehemiah's life is on the line. He realizes that it is not good for my face to show sadness in front of a king I'm supposed to be happy in front of. And so Nehemiah begins to explain what is going on. In verse 3 it says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. And in parentheses you might as well write down, and his servant the cupbearer. Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And so Nehemiah gives the reason for why his face is like it is. Now it's interesting that four months have passed since Nehemiah heard the news. Remember, four months ago he hears that the gates are burned with fire and the walls are broken down. And then he goes and he does spends time with God in prayer. He says, God, my people have sinned and I have sinned before you. God, I, will, I want you to do something great. And we come before confessing that the reason we're in exile is because we disobeyed your commands. And right now, we're confessing this and coming before you. I, as a representative of the nation, am coming before you asking that you would do something. And my guess is that during those four, four months is that prayer got repeated over and over again before the Lord. That it didn't, the burden of a broken down city and a nation that was in shambles did not go away just because he prayed one prayer and went into the presence of the king. I think those four months wore on Nehemiah. And Nehemiah spent time going, God, what do you want me to do? This is what I know. What do you want me to do? This is what I know. What do you want me to do? God, this is what I know. I'm willing to do whatever you want. I'm willing to go wherever you say to go. All the way, God, my Savior leads me. We can go back to that. God, whatever you want. And so in verse 4, we see this. This king said to me, what do you request? So this is the second thing. Nehemiah solicited the king's help. What do you request? And then this phrase, so I pray to the God of heaven. I, I love that that's there. But I'm wondering when somebody asks you a question, how long do you stop to pray? I'm thinking this is a really, really short amount of time. So the king said, what is your request? And, and Nehemiah said, Hold on just a minute, let me pray. I think it was more one of those things like, like you do when you're driving your car. And you go, I'm going to pray, but I'm going to pray with my eyes open as I navigate this car down the road. I think it was one of those. What do you request? And Nehemiah in his spirit said, all the things that I've been praying for four months, God, God, help that to come to my mind. Help my heart to be revealed before King Artaxerxes, and God, let him be receptive. Let, as it said in the very last part of chapter 1, God, make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. I think that is repeated over and over again in Nehemiah's life. And here is the spot where that compassion is meted out to Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, what do you request? And here he lays it out. 
This is the, this is the solicitation for help. In verse 5, it says, I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, and we know that he served in that place of honor and integrity, it was likely that Artaxerxes had high regard for Nehemiah. He said, if your, if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So the first thing is asking for, for permission to leave. He asked for permission to leave. And he said, then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will, you, will your journey be and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. How did he come up with that time? Four months. He spent four months figuring this out. He sat and he said, God, grant me the opportunity to go back to Judah and rebuild. Help me to figure out the plan for doing it. And so when they got to that spot, when the king said, how long will you be gone? I could give him a definite time because I had a plan. He's 800 miles from the site of the work. Yet he had a plan and could come up with a plan. And so the, he asked for permission to leave. Gave him a specific period of time to be gone. And then he said, and I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. So we just stop there. Nehemiah asked for permission to go, but he didn't just stop at permission to leave. He said, Grant me or give me letters that as I travel, I will have safety. And so he asked for permission to leave and then safe travel. And then he went even so far as to ask for materials. Grant me the, as the keeper of the forest, give me a letter that says that the forest is mine. That I can get all I need from there to rebuild what needs to be rebuilt. And so he asked for these permission. And Nehemiah understood that Artaxerxes could say no to any piece of this. But he understood that God was at work. He said, to the house which I go, will go, and the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. That is a key phrase. Underline that phrase. The good hand of my God was on me. So Nehemiah solicited the king's help. The king granted it. And Nehemiah was sent by the authority of the king. It says in verse 9, So Nehemiah was sent. It's the third part. When then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So the king just didn't say, You go, take this piece of paper and leave it at that. The king said, I'm sending with you people to protect you and to take care of you. So, so Artaxerxes went above and beyond in sending his most trusted person in his kingdom, the one who tasted his food and his wine, to send him off. I want him back. I want him protected. And so Nehemiah takes off. He's sent with the authority 
of the king. And then we, I want to skip verse 10 because we'll come back to it in a minute. In verses 11 through 16, Nehemiah scouts out the situation. So the fourth point this morning is Nehemiah scouted the situation. He went out at night without a lot of fanfare and checked out the city. It was a night excursion around the whole place and understood that he couldn't take any shortcuts. So he went all the way around and came back to the spot. And it was confirmation of the news that he had received four months earlier. He was just looking at all the, all the wall that had been broken down and the gates that were burned, and he kind of confirms that in verses six, 11 through 16. Even in verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. So Nehemiah went out and just scoped it out. He really didn't tell anybody he was doing, what he was doing. Fifth thing I want us to see is that Nehemiah stirred the people to action. In verses 17 and 18, it says, Then I said to them, and so he's, he's come back from this night excursion, figuring out what is wrong in the city and looking at all the desolation. And he comes back and he says, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned by fire. And then he presents a challenge. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach or an embarrassment. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And this is what happened after that. Nehemiah said those things and the, the Jewish leaders of that area got together and they decided to form a committee or a ministry team. And then that ministry team got together on Tuesday nights and spent about six months trying to figure out what to do. Is that how it went down? Is that what happened? Not exactly. Nehemiah didn't say that. And it, this is what it says. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And verse 18 says, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said this. Just wait, I'm not sure, Nehemiah. No, they said, let us arise and build. In the last part of that verse, so they put their hands to the good work. There was no hesitation. It doesn't say that, that Nehemiah, after saying, let us arise and build, that the people went away and said, give us about four months and we'll help you figure this out. No, it was, let us do it. Let's go. So they put their hands to the work. It's interesting. Without a vote, without grumbling, without second-guessing, they put their hands to the work. It was literally a big change. Essentially, at that point, they said, we are all in. We see God's hand at work, and because we see God's hand at work and the testimony of you coming 800 miles to share with us that, we are all in. Let's go. So they were going to put their hands to the task. It stirred the people to do something immediate. It stirred the people to be immediately obedient to what God was asking them. 
I'd venture to say that on any given Sunday, there are folks in here that hear something that God says, and God wants you to move immediately, and you say, but wait a minute, I need to think about that for a moment. Or I think I need to go and pray, because that sounds real spiritual, doesn't it? When the fact is, we need to let go of the pew in front of us and move when God says move, without hesitation. Let us arise and build, so they put their hands to the good work. You see, there, there's a piece of this that we have to understand. In verse 10 and verse 19, there are two sections, two verses of Scripture that describe something that is directly opposite what God had in mind for Nehemiah and the people of that, that place to do. In verse 10, it says, When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, they were very displeasing to them. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. And then in verse 19 it says, But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? We have to understand there will always be opposition to the work of God. Always. In fact, if there is no opposition to something, you've got to question whether it really is the work of God. There will always be opposition. It says they mocked or ridiculed. It was the idea of insulting them with the possibility of this large undertaking. That task is too big. And then they despised them or regarded them with contempt to, to look down on them and say, you're not worthy to do this. You're not big enough to accomplish it. If, if, in fact, if you look in your history, you've tried to do this, and every time you've tried so far, it has failed, and that's why you are in distress and a reproach. Every time it has failed. And then he questioned their motives. He said, are you going up against the king? Are you rebelling against the king? And we know as we read this and what the letters had already come out, Nehemiah wasn't rebelling against the king. He was going with the blessing of the king. And they were saying, well, we're not too sure about this. Are you rebelling against the king? Or essentially, are you wanting to establish your own kingdom? And Nehemiah answered, said in verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success. You can be sure of that. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Basically, bug off, guys. This is of God. And if God is in this, it's going to succeed. So we will arise and build. And you guys stand back and watch. Well, they didn't want to stand back and watch. We'll read that in the coming chapters. But they are very upset that Nehemiah is even trying. They're upset that there is, there's this push among those people to do something that had allowed those other guys to be bullies in that area. Remember, as long as the walls are down and the gates are burned with fire, the people around them have control. And Sambalat and, 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 um, Sam and Tobiah and Geshem see their control fading away. How many times have you seen in churches 
that the biggest obstacle to doing something for God are those that grumble because they're losing control. I've seen it more than I want to see it. I've heard it more than I want to hear it. It's no place for God's people to stand back and say, I'm going to stand in in the path of the work of God just because somebody needs to say no on a business meeting floor. If God is in it, the people need to be in it. And the people need to arise and build as God has said. Nehemiah's, if you want to say this, drawing a line in the sand or a red line, if you want to get political, all those kind of things. But he's just saying, hey guys, this is going to happen because God's in it. God has had his hand on this from the very beginning. As I stood before King Artaxerxes in fear of what the king might do because I came into his presence with a sad face, I realized that the king, that God was working on the king's heart as well. And he blessed me with letters to show up. He allowed me to survey it. and He's provided the materials for us to accomplish it. Guys, God's in it. We have to understand that God is always at work. Always at work. Our job is to observe that and then get in where he's working. Blackaby said this. um, Told you I was reading a book called Flickering Lamps, and this is what he said about his work in Saskatoon. He said, fellow pastors and denominational leaders questioned my leadership because they thought I was leading our church toward financial ruin. Essentially, they were starting missions and going out and doing things and had 10 people in the church that was providing all the materials all the um, finances for the church. So they really didn't have resources. He said, but we realized we could never convince skeptics that we had heard from the Lord. They weren't with us when he spoke. We refused to allow naysayers to be our focus. At the end of the day, our desire was not to appease our detractors, but please our Lord. So they continued. And God blessed their efforts. It's what we read about in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, where Peter and John have been taken into a court because they've shared and they've gotten arrested. And they said, we want you to be quiet. And Peter and John said, no, we will not. We have to continue to say what we have seen and what we have heard. We have to continue to tell the truth of who Jesus is. And that salvation is through Him alone. We're not going to stop. It was a work of God. And I want to tell you this morning that there is a work to be done in this community. There's a work to be done in this church, and there is a work to be done in our homes for the glory of Christ. If we don't think God's at work in any of those spots, we might as well not show up at church. We might as well not even mention the name of God. We might as well say, God, I'll give you my token two hours this week, but I'm keeping the other 166 because I don't believe you're worth it. There's a work to be done for the glory of Christ. And the question is, will we do it? Will we step into it? We, us, will we step into what God's calling us to do? Or are we going to stand back and say, I'll pray for you. I'll see you later. I don't think so. Or I don't really think that's of God. Or will we say, let us arise and build? There's a work to be done in us and in our community and in the church and in your homes. There's a need for revival that can only happen as we surrender our wills to His will. It's what Nehemiah was calling the people to. 
It wasn't just a building, but it was a revival of God in their midst. There's a need for revival here. It's a need for a revival for us to follow God with an unbridled passion, changing the priority of our life from two hours to 168 hours. There is a generation that needs the truth of God's Word seasoned with grace and love. And there will be a generation that follows that will need to hear the same thing, that God is in charge and that God exists and that God loves you with a mercy that you can't understand, but as you trust Him, it will bring a peace and a freedom that comes by the forgiveness of your sin. It is a call to repentance. It's a call to a personal, loving relationship with a holy God that loves us more than we can imagine. So there's a work, there's a revival that needs to take place, there's a generation that needs to be reached, and there are families that are broken. They need parents, grandparents, fosters that, who are wholeheartedly committed to the things of God. They would love Him with all their mind, their heart, soul, strength. Some of those families, and I know it's Father's Day, so I'd be remiss not to mention dads. Because there are dads and grandfathers and surrogates that need to step in and help lead a generation to know who God is. And for too long, dads have abandoned their responsibility of leading their kids well in knowing God. Not just who He is, but to see the work of God and his hand at work around them. I was asked a question yesterday. If you had to do it over, what would you do different with our kids? And I guess the question, when you say our kids, kind of nails down who asked the question, right? What would, you different, what would you do differently with our kids? It's like, okay, we'll have a ride in the car conversation. I don't know if I want this one. It's a good question. So we can look back and say, these are the things that I would have liked to have changed, but I couldn't. Or I can't. My confession? I would have been probably lighter on the things that come out of my OCD nature and heavier on the things of God. I would have prayed with my kids more. That's probably what I would have done. There are a lot of things that we can do in response to the call of God on our lives. I want to give you three. First one is to evaluate. First one is to evaluate. First part of that question is, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Is He your Savior and Lord? And if we were to, everyone close their eyes, I'm not asking you to do this, it's kind of, sort of hypothetical, if we were to close our eyes and you knew nobody was looking around, because you know that when, a, when somebody says, 
everybody close your eyes, there are people that peek, right? But if we were really to be honest with that and close our eyes and nobody looking around, could you, could you really say that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that He is your Savior and Lord? How would you answer that question? As a college student back in Atlanta, there was a time where I was faced with that question. And it essentially asked me the question, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Because when you're faced with, with Jesus and an all-in proposition of the gospel, the, the idea is that as you give your life, it changes the traje- trajectory of your life. So I was faced with that. What direction did I want to go? And so I had to make a decision about my relationship with Jesus Christ. So the first question, do you have a relationship? The second one, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your love for God? Not your knowledge of God. If you show up at church every week, you've got some knowledge. You have some gospel in your brain. You understand a little bit of who Jesus is and what he did and, and how we're supposed to live out a Christian life. But having a head knowledge of God and a heart knowledge of God are two different things. There are lots of folks that walk around with a head knowledge of God and it has never penetrated their heart. They've never gotten to the place where they surrender their heart to God. They just know a lot of things. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your love relationship with God? The second thing, not just evaluate, but facilitate. In your home, let your passion for Christ be evident to your kids and grandkids. If nobody's there, let your passion of Christ be evident to those that live in your neighborhood. Let your choices reflect the Lord's character. And like Nehemiah, understand that it's going to be difficult. There there will be detractors. But don't compromise. If they don't see Jesus in you, where are they going to see Him? And And for kids and grandkids, parents and grandparents offer the biggest example of who Jesus is. So let them see the example of Christ in you. It's an influence. So evaluate, facilitate. The third one is escalate. Going, uh, okay, I don't even know what that means. Um, when we were, we were in New Orleans recently, there was an escalator. It was, it was one of the most unique, unique escalators I'd ever seen. Because there were two of them. There, I mean, obviously, there was the upside and there was the downside. But in between, there was a, another piece for shopping carts. It was a two-story target, and the grocery part was upstairs. I thought, okay. And we came in downstairs, so we didn't really know there was a parking deck that went out off the top. But we just think, we're thinking, well, that's a strange place to put groceries. It's on the second floor. But we got to that spot, and I was like, well, how do you get stuff down? You know, you get two people on an escalator, one on the front, one on the back, and you carry your buggy. I've I've watched some people shop at at Costco and Walmart and different places, and the buggy's stacked up that if you tilt it at all, things are going flying. And what it was is in the middle, they had a place where you could put the buggy, and it would come down beside you on the escalator. It just kind of hooked. When it got down to the bottom, it stopped. You You opened the gate, got your buggy out, and wheeled it to the front. 
And when, so when I say that we have to escalate what we do for God, it's the idea of just raising the bar. It's just taking it to another level. With all the stuff that you have, all the knowledge and information that you have about Christ and your love for Christ, escalate or raise up your level of living for who God is. Escalate your level. So raise the bar on how you lead at home. Raise the bar on how you do work at your workplace. Raise the bar on how you live for Christ in your community, in your neighborhood, with your neighbors. Maybe raise the bar in praying at home. Committing to lead your family to connect with God and with others. Heard the testimony of a lady. She wrote a book, and I'll give you the name of the book in a second. Um, but she was trying to figure out how to impact her neighborhood. And so ended up, and the, the bottom line of this is, they put a kitchen table or a dining room table, painted it a certain color out in their front yard, and they started doing all their homework, eating their snacks, and have dinner around this table in their front yard. And didn't you know that, that it created some conversation in the neighborhood? People passed by, what are you doing? Just hanging out, hanging out at my kitchen table. Want to join me? Have a seat. And so she would do her work out there during the day. They would have meals out there at night. And they would invite people into their lives with the idea of sharing the gospel. The book is called The, the Turquoise Table by Kristen Schnell. And so I'd encourage you, you know, if you want to pick that up, go ahead. But it's full of examples on how you can impact your neighborhood with the gospel. So ask the question, what would I do differently? Answer can't be nothing. For me, I had things to answer for. And going forward, what will it change in my passion and my effort today or tomorrow? Or next week. So the invitation is very is kind of simple. It's Father's Day. So I'm going to ask us to do a couple of different things. One, I'm going to ask if our deacons would come to the front and just stand across the front. And so I'm going to ask them to do that. And then I'm going to ask if you're a dad and would just want to be prayed over by another guy that you would come to one of these deacons and say, just, just pray for me. You don't have to give details. It may be just that I'm doing fairly well, but I would love if God would take my family to the next level through me as a dad. And so I would invite you to come and ask one of these guys to pray over you. The second part of this is if you're a mom or a student or, or somebody in a family and your dad is sitting around you, you may just want to pray over that father. It may be your commitment to say, I will follow your leadership and I'm trusting that you're going to follow God with all that you are. But you may just say, I want to surround you in prayer. And so what that may mean for some of you is you step into an aisle or against the wall and you pray over the dad of that family. And allow that to be a sacred time for you and your family to get together and say, Dad, we love you. We love you. And then some of us may need a fresh start relationship with God by coming to salvation through Christ. You say, I need to accept Christ as my Savior. 
Some of you may need to do that. Some of you may just want to come to the altar and pray. So there's a lot of pieces to this. Dad's coming for prayer. Family's gathering. Or, or somebody in here coming to Christ and saying, I want to turn over my life to Him. And so as God leads you this morning, I would pray that we would be obedient. We'd go back and say, I'm all in. I want to turn over my life to Him. Anywhere you lead me, I will go. And so let's pray. And then as God leads you during our time of invitation, please be obedient to Him. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the opportunity to be in this place this morning. God, Your your Word, as we look at Nehemiah's life and how You led him, how You taught him, and the the privileges you gave him before the king, and then as he left the king to go do the work, to encourage the people to follow you with all that they are. God, I pray that we would be a people so committed as Nehemiah was, and the people that surrounded him to do the work of rebuilding the wall. God, I pray for dads this morning. And and God, just knowing that we sometimes fail greatly and are in need of just as much mercy as anybody else, God, I pray you would strengthen us to be the men that you've called us to be in our families and on our jobs and in our neighborhoods, that we would see the revival take place in a generation that knows your works and knows how to follow you. God, that things would happen because we are committed to you wholeheartedly. And so, Father, during this time of invitation, help us to be obedient. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As God leads you this morning, you come. Your love, I've come to find a rest.
Father, we thank you for the opportunity just to be obedient. God, as you've called us, you've called us into your presence. And you've called us to follow you with all that we are. And so, God, may our lives declare who you are. Not just your mercy and your grace, but God, you are holy and just. Father, in that, may those around us see the hand of you upon us. That our work would be successful to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.